Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Sean Korn. Sean Korn is an internationally celebrated yoga teacher known for her impassioned activism, truth-telling, and her groundbreaking work in the field of yoga and trauma healing. Since 2007, she has been training leaders of activism through her co-founded organization, Off the Mat, Into the World, and utilizes her national platform to bring awareness to global humanitarian issues. With Sounds True, Sean Korn has written a new book called Revolution of the Soul, Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. With her new book, Sean makes it an imperative that we connect the inner work of yoga to the social needs of our time. According to Sean, at a certain point in our personal evolution, if it has real depth and integrity, there is a flowering and a maturation into the work of recreating the outer structures, the structures in our world that need to change in the name of equity and in the name of love. Sean calls this the revolution of the soul. Here's my conversation with the very lit up Sean Korn. Welcome everyone. I'm here in the Sounds True studio with Sean Korn. And this is a pretty big moment. We're here to talk about her new book. Check it out. Yeah, that's it. Revolution of the Soul. Awaken to Love <laughs> Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. Sean, to begin, I'm going to share with you the secret code word for this book that occurred to me while I was reading it, which is, it's two words, love bigly. <laughs> and I didn't think bigly is a word. But that's what really, that's what the book sings on every page, which is how to love bigly. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to start right there. Mm -hmm. What keeps our hearts more closed than we want them to be? And what can we do mm -hmm. about it? What keeps our, what keeps our hearts? Yeah. Um, I'd have to say trauma. Trauma, uh -huh. socialization, religion, education, anything that thwarts curiosity. There are so many ways in which we are denied connection with the highest part of ourself. So when we get attached to the ego and to the smaller self, there's never enough of anything to feel good. We're always wanting more sex, more food, more relationship, more money to be able to feel defined or valued. 
And when we can start reframing our narratives, heal our trauma, call our power back, it helps us to build our self-confidence. When we build our self-confidence, we trust our intuition. When we trust our intuition, we can't help but appreciate and have gratitude and love ourselves and then each other. But I don't want to suggest that it's like this. We've no. been socialized not to love, to be in our ego. It's going to take a long time for us to get back to, I think, which is our inherent state, which is grace. The core of the book is about radical healing mm -hmm. and then moving into conscious action. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about people who engage deeply in radical healing. You talk about that as the movement of evolution, mm -hmm. but then don't make that move to conscious action, yeah, to the yeah. revolution mm -hmm. part. What keeps us stuck there? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that in a second. Before that, I want to say, yeah. just to the people who are out here, that I've been writing this thing for three and a half years. You have indeed. And three and a half years three of and a half years. lots of work. And none of this would have happened if it wasn't for you. Hmm. That, and I just want to like, let that be known. Tammy, you have been up my butt for years to write this book. And I did not want to. I did not have the confidence to do it. I did not have the skill to do it. I knew it was going to take way more time than I had. And also, I had a sense it was going to invite me into places that I was not interested in, in, in dabbling into again. And um, you just were relentless, like a, you know, like a dog with a bone. And um, I cursed you oh, for right. years. And I'm so grateful because even though this was without a doubt the hardest experience I've ever had, because everything that I was afraid it was gonna be, it held up the mirror to every single one of my limiting beliefs. Even though it was so hard, it also brought me more creative joy than I've ever had. Hmm. The accomplishment that I feel having written, the rabbit holes of just despair that I went into, creative despair, just trying to figure out the process and then pull myself out of, there were so many times where I'm like, that's it, I'm at capacity. And then I would solve the problem. And so as much as I, I cursed you, yeah. I equally, if not more, blessed you. Because honestly, if it wasn't for you just you were the only one who were like, you, you need to do this. You really need to do this. And you were right, I needed to do this. And it was a scary process. And so the book is about inviting people to reframe their narratives. It's also asking them to take accountability. And what was so intense about the process is that it forced me to have to take accountability in a way I didn't expect, I didn't want to. And yet my hypocrisy became so evident. It was like, how dare I ask other people to step into their power and to start a revolution and resist it myself? Mm -hmm. What I also learned is that as transparent as I think I am, and yeah. I will be in this conversation most certainly, it's like I, I found that there's an edge to that, that I'm transparent to a certain degree, but you get to a, you get here, the wall shut very quickly and I control my narrative. The book wouldn't let me do that it forced me into that level of vulnerability. So it was intense. Like, I don't know why people write. I honestly don't know why people elect to do this. But let me ask you a question, because I think there's a portion of our audience who would love to write the stories of their life. And yeah. when they sit down to write, they're not quite getting to the same level of raw truth, vulnerability that you get to mm -hmm. in Revolution of the Soul. And you say the book wouldn't let you. Yeah. What about the book wouldn't mm -hmm. let you? And what would be instructive mm -hmm. for our listeners who want to make that journey themselves? Yeah. The, because 
my commitment was to my students. Like I, I thought about them a lot. Over the years, I've been in a really privileged position in that I get to bear witness to people's vulnerability. I get to help facilitate and take them into places within their consciousness where they resist. And it's because of their trust in me that they let themselves open just enough to allow some of those more shadowed places to come up. And I don't take that relationship for granted at all. When I wrote the book, I wrote that in, I had that in the back of my mind that every time I would resist going deeper, I would think, how dare I? Because they trusted me. I've got to give that back. I've got to, I've got to model what it looks like. And so I would write, and I wouldn't suggest that what I wrote was, when I would first write the first chapter, for example, it was like superficial. And I would step back and I could feel it in my body, like, uh-uh, there's more here. There's so much more here. And another part of my head would be like, nope, it's more than enough. But there was something so incongruent in me. Mm -hmm. So then I would just go a little bit deeper and I'd say, that's enough. And then finally I came up with the mantra for myself that I had to write everything but I didn't have to print everything. And that freed me up personally because I think in the back of my mind, I would self-censor thinking about like my mother or right. my teachers or my brothers. Sure. And I would write with that in my mind. And instead I said, you know what? No one's gonna read this. This is for you, you just write it all. And, but none of it ever has, actually has to make it to the book. What happened though is I got so accustomed to the stories I processed so much of that information. I grieved, I worked it out in therapy, that by the time it was, when I had to hand in the manuscript, there was very little that I didn't include. There was a couple little things, but it might end up in my next book. But mostly everything ended up in that book. And I think that that's what I had to commit to, knowing it was gonna be deeply personal and that I was gonna be confronting some raw truths. I had to give my, you know, the little girl in me just some permission that right now we're just processing. You're just going to write and explore that. Later, we'll decide who gets to actually see it. Yeah. You poured yourself out. Yeah. You really did. I did. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to restate the okay, question okay. I asked you mm -hmm. because... Oh, so thank you. Yeah. You're, yeah, yeah, that's more what I want to say. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. The question I wanted to ask you is, here it sounds true, we've done so much to help people with their personal evolution. Yeah. And I think one of the things we've heard back from our audience is sometimes it's transforming into the world as effective action. Mm -hmm. And for some people and in some situations, they seem to get kind of stuck yeah. in the personal evolution mm -hmm. part of the journey. Mm -hmm. And they don't quite know how to make that next step. Yeah. And your book is really framed as these two sections. First, we grow and heal, but then we love bigly out in the world. So help people make that bridge. But I think it's like anything. It's like someone might come to me and want to get their leg behind their head. Yeah. I'm going to say to them, well, before that can happen, let's get some bolsters and some blocks and let's just do Baddha Konasana. You know, let's just do something very um, modified based on where you're at, what your body can handle, and just sit in the discomfort of that. I think the same can be said for the way in which we evolve and work towards social change. If we go out there without understanding the ways in which we can actually create harm, that's approaching it in a way that's not sustainable and ultimately harmful. Maybe those people need the evolutionary part, the part where they're doing the inner work, where they're holding up the mirror to their own limited beliefs, where they're just getting into their body, their breath, and their projections. The next step then is 
it going beyond the stretch and into the reach. That's how I always look at, look at it. But some people do get stuck there. They get comfortable in that complacency. But that's never, for me, what yoga's been about. And if you, if you understand the practice of yoga the way I do, there was a point in my own evolution where it was like, now what? Now that I'm happier, now that I'm healthier, now that I have pretty good skills to deal with chaos, what do I do with this? And when I would reread the texts, it was so clear that our liberation is bound, that I can't be free unless we're all free, that I need to actually take these skills off of the mat, out of the yoga school, and apply them out in the world. Now, for some, it might just be in their families, depending on where they're at in their lives. Raising healthy, conscious children, being in mindful relationship that doesn't create personal or collective harm. But for others, it's taking it one step further. And hopefully for everybody at some point, we realize, especially for privileged, that we have a responsibility to be of service, to help to shift the consciousness of this planet now more than ever, because so many lives are at stake. And so to me, conscious action is an inevitable step in the path of yoga, and it is its own spiritual practice. Most people that I see in the mainstream yoga community, you know, we wanna help, but we don't understand the shadow of that. And our helping can often look like dominance, supremacy, saviorism. And that continues to perpetuate that power dynamic that creates separation. And so I caution people when they wanna go out there and help to really unpack what that means and who is it actually for. That's its own yoga. To have to look at the ego, you know, my need to feel good about myself, fixing something that I, I may not even understand. That's about me, that's not about the situation. So the practice of yoga really exposes all this as another part of your emotional practice um, that also leads to evolution. So I encourage everybody to try to take that, that step away from indulging in the inner work and trying to understand how that inner work informs the work we need to do in the world. Now, one of my favorite parts of the book, and there are lots of favorite parts, is your introduction of a woman named Mona Miller mm -hmm. and your experiences yeah. with Mona. And, you know, as I started off and I said, what keeps us from loving bigly? You said a lot of it is our trauma. Yeah. And you worked through levels of trauma with yeah. Mona that were remarkable. So share a little bit. Introduce Mona to the Sounds True audience. Uh, Mona, Mona was, and I say was because Mona died. Um, you would have loved Mona. I already do. Mm -hmm. um, she actually has a book online um, that she had wrote called Invisible Warfare before she had died. Um, that was remarkable. She was a character larger than life, like a cartoon character. When I first met her, I just thought, who is this woman? She could just break you down, but make you crack up hysterically all at the same time. And Mona was not a therapist. She it was called communication arts. And because, as I say in the book, she would have been arrested for what she did because it was very radical and it was really intense. And she was quite psychic, if you would, when she would squint like uh -huh. this. And throughout the whole week, she would make you do these things called air outs where I would have to call her machine and just bitch, just bitch and moan. And because she didn't want to waste time in sessions dealing with the, the story. So she would, you know, kind of do the dishes, listen to whatever the nonsense was and then get to work. And Mona's work was about rinsing the big feelings, the trauma, giving it a voice, and being in relationship with the shadow, not denying it. 
and she had an issue with a lot of the mainstream uh, spirituality communities because very often spirituality doesn't look like rage. It doesn't look like the fuck yous. It doesn't mm -hmm. look like jealousy. It doesn't look like bitterness. And Mona's work was to help you to give voice to that because it was energy and it lived in the body and it was going to come out in, a, in another way. And so there was a lot of yelling and hitting things and I hated it. It was so vulnerable, a lot of writing and always getting to the grief. But her way of doing things was just hysterically funny and so open. I mean, if I, let's say I went in and I'm like, Mona, I just murdered someone 10 minutes ago. And she'd be like, okay, baby, let's get down to this. <laughs> There'd be zero judgment. And um, everything was just about the work. I remember when my dad died. I, I called her, I, I called her, I was on my way uh, to the airport and I called her to tell her that my dad died and I was missing a session. She goes, she goes, okay, when you get on the plane, I want you to write, dear dad. I'm like, no, no, Mona, I'm not doing that. She goes, too soon? I'm like, yes. But that was Mona. She was like, get right at it. But with so much joy and everything was, when I look at you, I see and feel. I'm angry because, I'm scared because. But then she would do this weird thing. I never figured out how she would do this. We would do all this journal writing and then she'd come in and just circle words. And then she would write the words up on one side and leave the room to go like whatever she would do. And you had to, let's say she circled red. You wrote the first thing that came to your head, blue, in, out, whatever it was. You'd do your own column. She'd come back in and then she'd connect the dots and reframe whatever it was. And it was your soul talking. And every single time I'd be like that, freaks me out. And she goes, there's your answer. And it really helped inform that our ego was having, the story was what I was writing. But within the story, there was always the truth. And her work was to help us identify the truth within the story, not separate from. It was genius. And so I worked with Mona for 11 years, did intense work, deep, deep healing work uh, around uh, uh, everything I write about in the book, sexual molestation, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, all sorts of limiting beliefs, all sorts of attachments. She went after all of it. And then um, I guess it'd be nine years ago, her, she was in a, a horrible car accident. Her and her wife, they flipped uh, in the car and she was thrown from it and died. And I wa it was horrible. I mean, all of us were broken. But at the same time, I wasn't surprised. I always had a sense she wasn't really long for this world. She was in a whole other stratosphere. Mm -hmm. She used to say to me, she just wants to stay on the planet. She wanted to stay on the planet until her son became an adult. That was so important to her. She died about two weeks after he turned 21. Hmm. Yeah, so that was Mona Miller. Get her book, Invisible Warfare. Deep, deep work and funny and rich. And I think it helped me. Like I'm very, um, I, I, I don't have a lot of judgment in me when people also tell me there's their stuff, whatever it is, because I recognize through Mona that it's just part of the story. It's like, let's go, get, let's get, it's underneath it. It's just an aspect of their experience, but it's not who they are. And I write about this in the book, but she gave me a lot of wisdom and a lot of confidence and much of my voice. I think um, she'd be very proud of me. Um, I, I have no doubt in my mind, she, this is what she would have wanted from me, not to hold back, to tell the truth, to be funny about it, and at the same time, real and vulnerable and angry and not let those emotions somehow become second to my love. And she would want both of them to have presence in the book, so I hope, uh, I hope she's mm -hmm. proud. I'm sure she is, mm -hmm. actually.
I think what impressed me and the reason I wanted to talk about Mona is that for some people who are on a yogic path, they're doing their exercises, they're maybe chanting, they're on the cushion meditating, mm -hmm. and they're trying to work through their trauma that way. And part of what you point out in this section on radical healing is that there was something in that that wasn't thorough, wasn't, yeah. didn't take you all the way, mm -hmm. that there was still a type of control in that. Yeah. And there was something in your work with Mona where you went out of mm -hmm. control. And I, I wanted yeah. to underscore that and hear, what do you think is the core of doing that type of shadow work? For me, I mean, like you said, my, but all my practices, um, they built me to Mona, meaning that my nervous system had to be ready for her. Had I gone to Mona too soon, yeah. I don't know if I could have handled that. It's like the asana ground me. The breath work regulated my nervous system. I learned tools of, Mona would say it was, I learned tools of detachment, um, but not in the healthy way. Detachment is dissociation. I used the physical movements to steady and ground, the breath to self-regulate. I could admit the way I felt, but I couldn't own it. And those are two very different things. Like if you asked me how I felt, I could say like, oh, I'm, I'm angry. Right. Mona was like, no, 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 you're angry. Let's, let's, let's see it. Let's witness it. And I, I could feel my whole nervousness be like, no, 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 we can't go there. And so she was saying like, your yoga is all great. This is great. But in some ways I was using asana and breath work the same way I'd once used cocaine and, you know, sex as a way to numb out. So I just found another tool for self-control. Mona forced me to have to get wild and to have to let the uncontrolled animal out because her feeling was that the rage was an animal energy and that if not acknowledged, it would find its outlet. And so the wildness of my time with Mona freed me up in such a huge, huge way in conjunction with my yoga practice. That didn't go away. I did my asana, I did my breath work, I did my prayers and my chanting, and I screamed and I cried and I processed and I got to the fuck you underneath the, you know, everything happens the way it's supposed to in order for the soul to transform. I had to get underneath that first before I can actually own the truth of that statement. Otherwise it was just bypass. So she taught me how not to bypass. How does someone know when they're doing their yoga practice, their breath practice, whatever, that they're using it as a type of bypass? How do we self-identify mm -hmm. that? I think that's a very individual question. I, I would hope that people work with a teacher, that they are both challenged and supported in their process. I know for myself, I can tell when someone is uh, dissociating and checking out. But the only reason I can do that is because I'm a dissociator and I check out. So I know the signs to see. If someone's checking out or dissociating, there's a reason for it. So you don't want to re-traumatize someone by saying like, what are you feeling? But there are ways to gently help to support a student to get safe enough in their bodies to be willing to confront some of that suppression. But the only way to really do that is through a good teacher, is through some serious radical self-reflection, asking yourself those questions like, am I really going deep enough? Like, what is my intention in this practice? Um, am I present? For me, when, I, when I'm teaching, part of the discipline what I invite my students to do is focus on the breath, of course, on sensation and how long they can stay with the sensation until they begin to check out. And 
I'm asking them to notice their thoughts. I'm asking them to notice, is it your ex-boyfriend? Is it your, you know, your kids? Do you get one breath or three breaths before you're in fantasy? The reason is, is because at, when you're practicing asana, the body starts to release energy. The tension starts to release. There's emotion that's buried within the body that's also coming up to the surface. If we don't have any indication that what is on the other side of that tension is safe, it would make sense why you'd want to stay in that contraction. That's the sensation of the contraction means control. It means safety. Yoga actually breaks that down and it makes you start to feel. But once you start to feel, the go-to is fantasy. In the same way out in life, if we have a big feeling, we drink alcohol, we smoke pot, we do things maybe to anesthetize ourselves. On the mat, we don't have that. All we have is our monkey mind. And so I want to invite students to, to identify, literally name the, name the sensation, stabby, tingly, electric, whatever it might be, and keep breathing into that sensation and then notice agitation, um, frustration, projection. That, those are all indicators that there, there's something going on beneath the surface that their nervous system is trying to run from and that if they can learn to breathe and stay present to it, there's an incredible wisdom that the body wants to share. It's the story. So I would guide the students into just staying present. I think for the students who are checking out, there's probably something going on that needs to be identified, that needs excavation, that they're in avoidance to and to be patient with the process um, because that's all this is, is a process. When I, I, I did five years of asana before I had an emotional re response, it's in the book. But those five years, they were so important. I needed those five years just to feel okay in my body. I didn't have a relationship to my body in the same way. I need those five years to stop doing drugs and drinking and just eating better and changing my environment there was this other purification process that was happening that was just as important as the work I do out in the world. The work in, that I do out in the world came from those initial steps. So I don't want someone who's in their practice thinking that somehow what they're doing is inadequate. I hope that they recognize though that there are tools to get into the body deeper if they're open to it. And I hope they can get open to it because that's the work that doesn't change the body. It changes their life. You write quite a bit about your own experiences with dissociation mm -hmm. and how you came to a place where you can recognize when it's happening in you. You, you define it as any time we feel so overwhelmed mm -hmm. by experience and feeling that we just, mm -hmm. you know, escape. Mm -hmm. How do you know? What does it feel like in mm -hmm. you when you dissociate? And maybe you could yeah. share an example something, you know, it happens, I'm sure, still in your life. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. And, and how do you come back? My dissociation, uh, it's interesting because people might not identify my, my dissociation because I look very calm. Mm -hmm. I will seem incredibly grounded. I'll be articulate, um, mature almost. Mm -hmm. I just, if you ask me a question, I'll respond to it um, in a way that just seems like I'm... Um, that I understand, that I got it. Um, but I'm, there's a lack of presence and zero emotion. There's a numbness that I experience, slightly disembodied, that I'm, I'm slightly behind myself in a way. Um, but I've gotten, in the past, just really, really good at being able to be just like this uh -huh. 
and at the same time completely checked out from my own emotions. My dissociation started, as I talk about in the book, at six because I experienced sexual molestation. And the first time that it happened, there was a literal feeling of, of floating above myself. You hear that a lot with, with people who've experienced that, that, that kind of overwhelm. It was as if it was happening to someone else. I was very calm. There was no emotion attached to it. It was a very disembodied experience and it, it has a sensation. There's a thickness to it. And yet within the thickness, it's, as, it's like the parameters are thick, but inside of it, there's this odd airiness. And um, you could pretty much say anything to me and I'd have no emotional response to it. Um, and that followed me, you know, anytime I'd experienced something traumatic, my body would revert back to that mechanism. It was an incredible, it was a gift at that time. It was what my nervous system knew to do in order to protect me. It's just that as I got older, it just didn't work anymore. And so I don't dissociate like I used to, not even close, but that's only because I have the skills of yoga to pull me in my body. The times where I've experienced my dissociation now is usually if I'm doing any major service work I'm a, and I'm in environments where there's unimaginable trauma, especially related to children, and especially if it's related to sex trafficking or sexual abuse. For me to do my job almost, talking to pimps, anything of that nature, I have to dissociate, otherwise I will lose my mind. Otherwise I will re-traumatize myself. The thing is I can use the dissociation to do what I have to do. But later when I go back to my hotel or I go home, I get my tennis racket and I get my cushion uh -huh. and I process wow. it. So I don't live in that, that kind of um, disconnected space. I make sure that I rinse whatever it is, fuck you, just pour it out of me until I start crying. My dissociation is to avoid tears and, and to avoid anger, it's to avoid any emotion. So until I can get to the anger and the tears, I'm suppressed. So that's, that's a little how, like, I know if it's happening, if I feel that thickness and that odd airiness that floats between it. Uh -huh. So you bring a tennis racket with you as part of your toolkit. It's interesting. <laughs> okay, now another thing from Mona that really was so meaningful to me was this sentence, your pain is your, your purpose. purpose. Yeah. I thought that was tremendously deep and rich. Yeah. What does that mean, yeah. your pain is your purpose? Um, the very thing in which the very thing that brings you to your knees, the very place where your own journey leads you for self-love, self-compassion and empathy is the very place from which you will be most skilled to be of service. I'm my best with children who have been sexually exploited in any capacity. There's, um, that's, that's, the, that's the space I can hold. And it's, it's because, now, of course, there's a, a, you know, abuse lives on this massive spectrum and you can't say that I, you know, just because I've experienced a form of sexual abuse that it's just that I understand exactly what someone else has gone through. That wouldn't be true at all. But I do understand dissociation. I do understand um, uh, betrayal. I understand um, the shutdown that can come with that kind of betrayal. And so it allows me not to feel pity or sympathy which is hierarchical, that puts me above them, but it lets me empathize and talk to them heart to heart and learn something from them in the same way. Hopefully they can connect to something within me. It's not one-sided. And so um, 
you know, Mona was very clear from the very beginning, like, we're going to go after that and you're going to find gratitude because of this. And you're going to thank God that this experience happened to you so that you can show up in the world and actually step into your purpose fully. And that's exactly what you did. It got me to a place where I was able to say, like, you know, I don't, I didn't welcome sexual molestation, but I can't change what is. That's life. That's just how it went down. But what Mona taught me to do was shift my perception so that I can become empowered, not in spite of that experience, but because of it. And be free of the resentment, the anger that I feel towards those characters in my life. Otherwise, I'm still holding that energy. But that took me years to get to, years. You know, when I first started working with Mona, it was a, it's in alignment with this. I was talking with my, my, my boyfriend uh, at the time, this is 18 years ago now, he's my fiance, but we were talking about manifestation. And yeah, he's much, he's more cynical than I am. And, you know, and I said to him at that time, I said, okay, I have the, I have the feeling of Oprah around me. And, and remember I wasn't, I was bare, you know, I was a newer yoga teacher yeah. then. Um, so it wasn't like in the realm of possibility. Right. I said, I, I feel the energy of Oprah around me. I said, I don't know when, and I don't know what capacity I could be her cleaning lady, but I will work for her in some, at some point her and I are going to work together. And my, my partner was like, okay, okay. And I said, you know, in five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll find you. And I'm going to tell you that this happened. I know what's going to happen. I feel it in my body. The next morning I come home, there's a message on my machine. Wow. And it's from Oprah's company. Right. What was it at the time? Harpo. Harpo. Yeah. And they're doing a particular episode and they wanted to talk to me about it. Now I thought it was Al playing a joke on me. Right. So I call him up. I'm like, ha ha. And he's like, oh my God, no, I had nothing to do with this. I swear to God, that's really them. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, I manifested this in like, you know, 24 hours for God's sakes. I'm amazing. So they send me like a questionnaire and they start asking all sorts of questions. And I'm just filling this all out like little essays. I send it to them. They send it back to me and now they're getting specific. And I realize that they want my story. And at that point, I knew I had a story and I knew I had a great story for Oprah. Oprah. I knew that she, like I can get on yeah. there and be wonderful. But I froze inside because... I had this sense that if I was sitting across from Oprah in that moment and she started to ask me questions, I hadn't processed it enough to be empowered by it, that I would be re-traumatized, I'd start to cry, I wouldn't reflect, the, the, I wouldn't model what the work looks like because it was just too raw. So I stopped the process. I was like, I'm like, huh. just not doing this. And I went to Mona and I remember her saying to me, saying like, okay, Obviously, you see, you got to be careful what you ask for. And let's set you up now. Let's do everything we can in, in your power so that when that time comes, you can sit as an empowered woman, own that story and everything that goes with that story. Feel it. Be vulnerable, just not broken in the vulnerability. And be an example of someone who actually lives this work. She goes, let's prepare for it. That's how I wrote this book. The 11 years that I worked with Mona was all catalyzed in that moment that Oprah, that, that experience was inviting me into my pain. Mona was saying, let's turn this into your purpose. And that's exactly what this is. All that work evolved into that. Now, let's say someone's listening and they're looking at their own pain. Mm -hmm. And maybe their pain has to do with early childhood, something or other. Mm -hmm. Maybe their pain's about something in the world. Who knows what their pain is? Yeah. Maybe, you know. But they're not making a connection yet 
to how that's their purpose. Yeah. They've in fact been looking yeah. for how to be purposeful. And they're like, yeah. you know, in the areas of my pain, that's actually where I'm weak. Yeah, yeah. I don't know a lot about that. That's mm -hmm. why it's so much, that's why it's so painful. Yeah. Well, I would have to say, keep doing their work. They have to keep doing their work. It's, you can't skip steps. I couldn't have started working with sexually abused kids at 18 or at 25. I had to do my own, I had to go be in relationship with my pain. I had to move towards forgiveness, which is an ongoing process, but I had to feel it first before I could actually be in service to others. Sometimes it happened simultaneously where I was kind of at the edge of my discomfort, but I had enough tools for self-regulation. For someone else, it might not yet be time. Find a place where you, your nervous system can be regulated. For example, I can't go into, I cannot do anything related to animal, um, animal rescue, animal rights, where it puts me on the front line where I actually see an animal in pain or someone else yeah. abusing an animal. My nervous system just implodes. I shake, I can't communicate. It becomes all about me. That's not the best place for me to be in service. I have other ways in which my veganism, I, I, I yeah. donate money, but I stay away from environments like that where I have to, I'm not a frontline animal right activist because I'm, my nervous system can't contain it. But sexually abused children, my nervous system can hold that because I've done so much inner work to lead me there. Alcoholics, when they get to a place, it, it, it's in the 12 steps, service is you know one of the main tenets of, of of the 12 steps but who better than an alcoholic who better than a drug addict who better than someone who has been exploited in some capacity when they've done the work and have tools for self-regulation to be able to model space for someone else to breathe to ground and to have the confidence within themselves to express so i, I just i caution people to want to move too quickly like this is all a pathway find little ways you know, to get involved, you know, instead of frontline, like don't go after it all at once. And there are definitely trainings throughout the whole of this country that really can support people in looking at, the, looking at their pain and their purpose, learning how to reconcile it, and also finding tools of sustainability so they don't burn out or create harm for themselves or for others. Hey, Insights at the Edge listeners. This message comes from Sounds True and Here to Be, Lululemon's social impact program. What happens when a Jersey girl in the 1980s rides into the New York East Village looking for her life's purpose? From celebrated yoga teacher and activist Sean Korn comes her new book, Revolution of the Soul. It's both a memoir powered by raw honesty and humor, and a spiritual guidebook to help us heal, evolve, and change the world. Learn more at revolutionofthesoulbook.com. In starting to live more and more your own mission of service to help in lots of different ways to empower yoga leaders and to work with, at, mm -hmm. at this point, as you were working with Mona, you started working with young girls yeah. who had been sexually abused or been put up as prostitutes. And you developed something that you called body prayer. Yeah. And I thought this was so interesting, how you developed it and mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. And I wonder if you can share that with us. Well, uh, 
God, it's so interesting because there's like so much context, you know, um, and context often matters. But I didn't have a really strong sense of spirituality because my own connection to spirituality would have been based on the Judeo-Christian uh, models of religion that I just could not get behind intuitively. And so I rejected any, I rejected the word God, and I certainly rejected the word prayer. It didn't make sense to me, and I didn't know who is this that I'm praying to, and what is this unseen and, and very patriarchal energy going to do for me? Why me? There's a lot of shit going on in the world, you know? So, like, why am I suddenly a focus? And if I don't pray, then I get punished? Like, that seems incongruent. So I had a lot of resistance to anything like prayer. And there was a time in my, in my relationship with Mona, with working with these kids. Again, your pain is your purpose. And Mona was like, you know, you got to get out into the world and be of service. I've got all this stuff coming at me. And, and that's so positive that you got to turn it around. And it's abundance. It's energy. And if you don't, the energy becomes, you know, constricted. It becomes even caustic. And so my service was very cavalier at first. It wasn't about really going out there because I had so much empathy. I didn't want to stop the flow of abundance in my life. And so Mona was just like, you got to serve, you got to serve. My activism in my youth, because I hadn't processed, it was very rage filled and it was great. It felt good because I would scream and get in people's faces and discharge energy. The rage was there. I was just moving it through. But because it wasn't processed, it was only temporary. And I was an ineffective leader as a result of that. Um, passionate, but not skillful. By the time I got to Mona, you know, I now have all these tools. She's like, all right, get back out there and serve. And it was very difficult because the kids really held a mirror up to my shadow. And I did not like these kids at first because I still wasn't comfortable with my own shadow. And I wasn't seeing how I was judging in them what I was still judging within myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was a deep spiritual lesson in this on so many levels, me being in the presence of these kinds of kids that reflected back so much of my own trauma. And, uh, you know, Mona one day was just like, you got to pray for these kids. And, and it was like, huh, what? Pray? And so I remember just sitting in my meditation you know, my mind was all over the place trying to figure out how I never had to go teach these kids again. But you had to make a commitment at that time. You know, I had a abandonment is a big deal with the, with with children yeah. who have been abused like that. So you have to commit to like a six month period. So I've got like six months that I have to like tolerate. And I've only done one day and I'm trying to figure out like how I can get out of it. So my mind is spinning and I start to practice yoga. And as I was practicing, there was just something about the movements that felt in that moment, you know, sometimes I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but it was just like, oh, that feels very ritualistic. You know, I mean, Surya Namaskara is in the name of the sun. These are movements that are in recognition to a higher energy. It only took me, you know, two decades to figure that out. I was like, wait a second. This feels like my body, the way I place my hands, the way I place my feet, how I move in and out of a pose. There was something about it that triggered something in me that energy is never um, static, that it's constant. And from my training, I understood that like language has an energy. So if I'm teaching a yoga class, I'm going to, and people are opening, 
I'm only going to use words that are mindful and supportive and loving and not to suggest they won't be challenging, but I'm not going to use words that aren't at, that are at a low vibration. And because energy matters, touch matters. If I touch you one way or another way, you're going to receive the energy behind it. It doesn't stop at my fingertips and nor does it stop at your physical body, but the same with thoughts. And I had a real sense that if I'm, if this is a mind body connection, my body remembers everything. If I embody everything in that moment, if I deflect the intention onto someone else and then just practice yoga like I normally would, but let my body reflect that prayer, I was curious on how the vibration of the thoughts and then the energy of my body could move that energy. And so put my palms together and I said, um, I said, calling in the God of your own unique understanding, be it your higher power, the creative consciousness, Mother Earth, or the Holy Mother herself. And the reason I did that is because I wasn't quite sure who to pray to. Right. So I was just kind of like, it, it didn't quite come out like that. It would have been more like the God of your understanding, you're the Mother Earth, the Holy Mother. You know, I was just grasping. And, um, and yeah, I was like, well, that kind of covers it. And then I thought, okay. Well, what am I, what am I asking for? You know, first it was, may these children be blessed. May they be happy. May, may, may they move through this day with more ease and peace. But then I thought, well, what about me? What's my part in this? Um, may I have the strength and the commitment to do the inner work necessary so that I can show up for these children and see them for who they truly are. And can I allow them to expose that which is within me? And it seemed inclusive. It wasn't asking for money. It wasn't asking to change circumstance. It was asking for clarity, for confidence, for strength, for myself and for someone else. And then I just let my body express it. And instead of getting caught up, when my mind would get caught up in a thought, I'd realize I don't want to introduce that to the prayer. So I'd bring all my awareness to what was happening. And what it did was make me present. Because if I was focusing on my feet and hands, I didn't have time to think about my ex-boyfriend. Everything became single pointed and committed. And when I was done with the practice, I remember thinking, oh, my heart felt open. I felt like I had done something in my practice beyond my own health and wellness. And it also helped me to feel more connected to the children, not on a physical level, but on a, on a more unified soul level. And so that's what I, that's what I kept doing from that. I still, that's how I still practice. My practice is still a dedicated prayer. There's not a single practice I do where I don't get on that mat, put my palms together and pray mm -hmm. for some a circumstance in the world usually, um, or you know, for you know, someone who's ailing, someone who needs a little light, or if I'm going through something, I'm, I'm not saying like, dear God, take this away. It was more just like, dear God, give me the wisdom to get out of my own way so that I can understand the circumstance with more clarity. Okay, now mm -hmm. I'm gonna just keep us moving along uh -huh. because there are a couple things I really wanna make sure we cover. You know, this mm -hmm. podcast, this Sound Street podcast is called Insights at the Edge. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple sections of Revolution of the Soul that are particularly edgy. Yeah. And I want to make sure we talk uh -huh. about them. Yeah, so sure. one of the super edgy sections is you have a chapter in the book where you describe your journey to India. Yeah. And at that point in time, you were thinking that maybe you needed a spiritual teacher. Yeah. You needed a guru. Friends mm -hmm. of yours said to you, it would help you so much if you had mm -hmm. a teacher. Great. 
And in your travels to India, you go to study for a period of time with Patabi Joyce, mm -hmm. who's the founder of Ashtanga Yoga, or the popularizer of that method in uh, the 20th century. And what you discovered when you went there was that he was sexually inappropriate mm -hmm. when he was making adjustments to poses, yeah. working with people in the room, and also working with you. Yeah. Okay, on the one hand, is that really that edgy? I mean, wasn't that edgy to me when I read mm -hmm. it? Didn't surprise me that yeah. much that, uh, you know, an old Indian patriarchal mm -hmm. spiritual teacher would do that. I wasn't surprised. And yet in writing Revolution of the Soul, you've heard from people, people who refuse to endorse the book because you yeah. wrote that. You've gotten letters from people. What's going on? Yeah. What, why yeah. is this so edgy? Um, I, it, sometimes I think that the yoga community is like the mafia, you know, you keep it in the family. And um, this is a, um, Patabi's behavior was a well understood and accepted, I, I don't even want to say secret. Um, there was a lot of denial around it. There was a lot of people who were very direct about it. I've been talking about this since 1996. It wasn't like um, uh, I ever hit it. It was like, oh yeah, this happened. and. I think what happened for me is about five years ago, there were some women who came forward who shared details of their experience with Patabi publicly. And they got vilified, ostracized from the community, shunned. And I would read their accounts and think to myself, they're not lying. Like, this is exactly what happened. And I felt so bad for these women, A, because they were so victimized. They went to Patabi thinking he was the guru. They went there so vulnerable and were really exploited. I was 30 years old when I went. I had been in therapy for years. I have a very close relationship with my family. It wasn't traumatic in that I was able to say like, oh, this happened. This kicked up some stuff from my childhood because I, I deal with dissociation and trauma. Um, I better process that. But I didn't carry it with me. And I didn't really hold a whole story around Patabi at all. But I watched these women get vilified. And when I started to write the chapter, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't intend to write about Patabi. I was writing about the guru-student relationship. I was really looking at the power dynamics that exist. And as I was pulling back these power dynamics, of course, what was also coming up to the surface was how we elevate these teachers and how they exploit students here in the U.S. and all over sexually. It was just naturally arising. But I was avoiding mentioning Patabi the whole way. But the chapter wouldn't, it wouldn't rest because I knew it was like this big chunk. The book was saying like, honey, honey, this chapter is going to make so much sense when you just fill in the blank. Yeah. The blank was my own personal experience. So it was becoming preachy and luxury, but you didn't know where it was coming from. And it, there was this moment where I thought to myself, I'm in an elevated position within this community. I've been around for a really long time. I know that I'm respected. I know that I'm loved. I have an obligation because of that um, authority to take the hit in the way that those women did. Those women put themselves out there, but they didn't have the protection that I have. 
their careers suffered. My career's not going to suffer. They were ostracized. I'm not going to be ostracized. And I thought, how dare I not use my position and my authority to share this story and to validate this experience, to say this is true. These women were never lying. None of these women were lying. And we are in such a culture of secrecy that we continue to protect these people and we perpetuate this culture of secrecy. So what I realized in the writing of it, that I was part of this culture of secrecy because I was avoiding it. That's what it put me into my edge. I had to confront the parts of myself that were complicit in the secret, that was practicing it very overtly by avoiding publicly, just naming it for what it is um, without apology and taking the heat a little bit off of some of the people who don't have, again, the same kind of protection that I have. That's why I wrote it. That's why it put me to my edge. I knew it was going to affect some of my relationships because people deify Patabi. My feeling is this. Patabi must have had his own trauma. There's no way for him to do what he did had there not been some trauma related to this, that the people who love Patabi should not have been deifying him. They should have been helping him. And by using sacred texts, by saying, well, Patabi, the guru doesn't have the same relationship with the body, you projecting onto the guru that which is within you, that is, I think, um, a real ab abuse of, the, of these texts. And it doesn't help or serve people like Patabi and many, many other teachers who are so elevated, they don't any longer have to do their own work. And so for me, if I'm really a leader in the community and I really want to break the shame around this and stop this division of power that happens that elevates teachers to be able to do this kind of exploitation, then I've got to be willing just to name it and own it and take the hits if the hits come my way because, I can, again, I can handle it. Otherwise, I'm the problem. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. And I couldn't do that knowing, like holding on to that secret inside me, even though it wasn't a secret, it just wasn't, it wasn't pulled apart the way I pull it apart in the book. But it also cuts back to, Patabi wasn't my guru, but he was a teacher. He, and I don't condone his behavior, I will never condone that kind of behavior. But I also recognize that there, that was an instrumental moment for me. Going out to Patabi, I dissociated every single time he touched me until once. He touched me and it would happen instantaneously. There was like an eruption in my body and I turned around and I smacked him, told him to stop. And it was the first time that I had ever, in all the years where you know, got, men had exposed themselves or touched me or things had happened, I usually went in dissociation. This is the first time I actually had action. And after that, I broke this strange cycle that I had been in and never have I, no, that's, that's not true, not never, so much less frequently in the face of where I would feel that kind of abuse of power, would I dissociate? Like it broke something in me. And so later on in life, I was able to say that was a significant moment. I, I, I wish it could have happened in a different way, but I was actually able to find my voice in that moment and stop this, what I felt was, um, was abusive behavior, it was inappropriate behavior. And able to stop it. So there was a great teaching in it, but Patabi was no way my guru. And um, uh, that's why I wanted to share the story. There's a lot of, lot of layers to it. And I hope that by sharing it, that other women who, have, who were working with Patabi, who got touched by him, who have been told that it was no big deal, 
I hope they exhale a little and don't feel so isolated or alone, and not just with Batabi, with any teacher that takes advantage of the vulnerability in that space. I hope they find the voice or at least the community so that they can express themselves and heal. I want to talk about that finding the voice because I'm imagining people who are listening to us right now who are questioning their own call to truth-telling and ways that they've held back. Mm -hmm. And maybe they held back, maybe I've held back, we've Mm -hmm. held back. Because, you know, I don't really want to make, I don't want to make waves. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, it may not be a a crossing of a sexual line. It could Mm -hmm. be something else where Mm -hmm. somebody acted in a way that, you know, they really should have been called on it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll just keep it to myself. And, you know, how do you know it's time for me to speak Mm -hmm. up? I mean, it sounds like this book almost had its own soul. Yeah the soul of the book and it required you as the scribe to do a certain amount of rigorous truth-telling nightmare yeah okay and and I know I'm responsible in some part but in it for your nightmare but uh yeah but in any in any case someone who's asking themselves am I called to tell the truth in this situation what would be your counsel to them are they safe do they have resources do they have support I think that's very important I had all of that by the time I was able to express myself, and I still have all of that. It's really, it's, again, it's very individual. I would never say to someone, you know, tell the truth, but there is a saying that you're only as sick as your secrets. And so if there's one person that you can own it to, find that person, sit with them, and let it be, let yourself be free of it so it's not living inside your body. I was 30 years old when I told Patapia to stop. And that was, I'd been, I'd been in therapy since I was 18 years old. So, and I'd been doing yoga since around the same time. So I had 12 years of deep, deep, doing deep, deep work before I was able to find that movement in my throat and feel safe enough within myself to say stop and to deal with the consequences of what that might mean. And the consequences were Patabi never touched me again after that, meaning he ignored me. Like I got punished. The other students, they ostracized me um, because I s- spoke up. And, um, you know, pretty much what I was afraid would happen, what ha- happened. But I wasn't bothered by it in the same way because I had some strength within me at that point to be able to manage it. It didn't break me in any way. Someone who might be newer to this, baby steps, write it, maybe just write the truth down, you know, whatever it might be, just write it down. So it's like, it, 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 so it lives somewhere. Put it in an envelope, seal it. Um, make a commitment that in five years from that point, you'll open that letter and reread it and see how you've evolved. Were you able to actually go towards even a, a piece of that truth? But it's so important to liberate yourself from the energy. You know, it, it's energy. That suppression is energy. And like I said earlier, it blocks our self-confidence and that blocks our intuition. And... Once you start to open your self-confidence, you know what to say and what to do and how to take care of yourself and don't have the same attachment to it. But it's a hard process. A lot in that, I mean, in some ways I waited for my dad to die before I wrote this book. You know, my dad would have, um, it would have been very hard for my father to read the details of my experience around sexual molestation and obsessive compulsive disorder and some of the, and the Patabi, all of it. It, he would have, um, he, it would have broken his heart in a way, uh-huh. and you know, yeah. 
forced him to have to relive things and I didn't want to do that. So, you know, here I am 52 years old and I still was like, you know, I'm going to kind of try to wait for a little bit until I lay this all out. And I'm glad I did for, for me, for that was my truth. I felt once he passed, I just felt liberated enough to be able to lay this out the way I needed to without feeling like I was self-censoring to protect someone else around me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I said I wanted to talk about a couple edgy things, and mm -hmm. here's the second one. And I think this was because it was actually edgy for me personally, and you brought it up a lot through the final 30% of the book, which is the importance of facing our own privilege yeah. and not just facing it, but holding ourselves accountable yeah. for it. Yeah. And I wanna understand more what it means to hold ourselves accountable yeah. for our privilege. Yeah, I mean the book is broken up into two sections. There's the evolution of the soul, which is the personal work, and then the revolution of the soul, which is actually how do you take that work out into the world. And the book moves in an arc that is reflective of my own journey and from the middle section between evolution and revolution is your pain is your purpose. And that leads me to the girls, to the going into the shelter, where I learn about the concept of helping. Like I wanna serve, I wanna help. So I helped until I realized, like again, the veils just get pulled back, that my helping, I was replicating a power dynamic, that I was playing out these behaviors that kept me in saviorism and therefore someone else in victim. Mm -hmm. That meant, that's the opposite of yoga. Yoga is interdependency, it's coming together and make whole. But when there's power over helping, there's power under. That's dominant and there's, there's dominance and then there's oppression. And that became a real moment for me. I'm like, wait a second. So I'm actually participating in the very separation that I say I wanna change, but this doesn't make any sense, I wanna help. But I hadn't yet unpacked what lives within us, within our bodies. If there's no separation between anything and our bodies remember everything and our bodies hold on to trauma, that means that my perception is going to be influenced not just by what happens in my conscious life, but I'm a product of my education, my religion, my parents, my grandparents, my whiteness as a culture, all of that influences who I am and what lives in my body. And I started to realize that so much of my service, I, I was going out there helping as a, you know, um, as a do-gooder white yeah. woman, but I'm bringing in hundreds of years of colonization everywhere I go. I'm bringing in hundreds and hundreds of years of white supremacy. The onus is on me to recognize the trauma that someone else on an energetic level might receive off of me, meaning that I might go into environments and I wanna help and they're shying away. Now they might not be aware that the reason they're shying away is because in the unconscious, I represent something that's not safe. That became something I needed to unpack as a spiritual practice. And it was hard. This whole back of the book, it was hard to write, it's hard to print, I'm sure that a lot of people are gonna be confronted by it. The hardest story that I wrote is chapter 12, dealing with my own uh, internalized racism and all the other isms. But what I want people to understand, there's no way I can't be racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, ageist, ableist. There's no way I can't be biased or have prejudice or stereotype people. It lives within my body. 
So in this moment, you know, I, that those elements aren't, aren't present. But put me in a situation where the rational part of my brain shuts down and the reactive part of my brain illuminates and I get scared. In that moment, I'm not in present time. I'm my grandmother. And all of those, in, uh, those ancestral biases shoot up to the surface. That became, this is the work I've been doing over the last 12 years, is really understanding this and going towards this, that I cannot be of service. I cannot help people and move us into oneness until I understand our differences and until I understand the ways in which I'm complicit in the oppression of others because of the culture in which I'm a part of. That's my privilege. That's my power. Those are the power dynamics. And this is a deeply spiritual practice. And that's where accountability uh, needs to come forward. Like being privileged is not a problem, but not understanding the way I, I benefit from that privilege and how the way in which I benefit actually means someone else gets less. That's the problem. So the hypocrisy is I was walking around like we're, you know, saying we're all one, that everything's connected, but it wasn't really true. It's not true when I can walk hand in hand down the street with my partner, kiss him and hug him and never worry about getting beat up. It's not true when I can get a visa to anywhere in the world that I want to go. It's not true when I have access to healthcare um, and education. We're not all one. And so it's normalized. My privilege is very normalized. So I don't have to look at the discomfort that's behind me. But my yoga says, actually, if your liberation is bound, you better look and you better recognize the ways that you actually create that. And that's what a lot of the book, the back end of the book really starts to unpack and invites people not to be afraid of this conversation. You can't change it until you see it. And it's a deep spiritual practice. And if I really want to change this world, there's only one revolution. It starts from within. I've got to dismantle the systems within myself first that create oppression. Then I can actually participate in creating systems that are actually in service to all. And so that's really what this goes, goes after. And I, I have a feeling it's going to be challenging for people. And I hope it is. But it's necessary. It's not scary at all. Like I, I, wanted, I needed to share my stories to model what accountability looks like and to not be afraid of it as a spiritual practice. What I'd love to understand more is how it didn't just change this question into privilege and accountability, how you view yourself, but how it's changed your actions, how you live, mm -hmm. what you do every day, what mm -hmm. you do with your lifestyle, your money, your good yeah. fortune, your fabulous relationship. How has it changed that? I, in so many ways. Like I have to always look at I, how do I use my privilege to help to support and benefit others? And how do I decenter myself, which is very important when you have privilege? How do I get out of the way? And that's something I, I weigh both. Like I, I, I will have opportunities based on the culture that I'm a part of that other people won't get. So how do I use the platform? How do I use that privilege to raise awareness, to raise money, things of that nature? But also, how do I how do I just get myself out of the way? Where am I taking up too much space? Because I can. My privilege lets me take right. up space. How do I get myself out and realize mm -hmm. that, that I need to decenter myself so that someone else who probably has more wisdom, more experience, can have that space and, and to be able to express that wisdom? You know, I, my 
privilege shows up, you know, in every capacity uh, in my life. But my hope is always, how do I use this effectively? How do I use this to help elevate others? How do I use it to raise awareness and not be afraid of the fallout? Again, my privilege prevents me from getting hurt in some ways. In the book, there, you know, there's going to be some feedback, some pushback. But my privilege allows me to be able to hold that and be okay with it. That's the way I should be using my privilege. Okay, just two final things, yeah, yeah, Sean. Yeah. This quote from Mona, your pain yeah. is your purpose, has a second part. Yeah. The second part is, and the true revolution to freedom mm -hmm. begins the moment we answer the soul's call for peace. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about what that means to you, mm -hmm. answering the soul's, soul's call, call for, for peace. peace. I mean, that is our inherent nature, it's love. And with love, there's peace. The two are side by side. There can't be a fractured society. There can't be lack of resource when there's love. There can't be violence. There can't be oppression. There can't be any of the isms that I mentioned. There can be only peace. When you answer the soul's call, when you surrender to who you truly are, which is love, that moment is the initiation. And so the, your pain is your purpose, but that purpose, your dharma, is what happens the moment you say yes to the soul's call for reintegration, for connection here planetarily and internally. So that's what that means. And can we end with a body prayer? The body prayer. Yeah, let's end together. Yeah. You mean to actually go? Let's do it. Let's do it together. Um, you, me, and our audience. All right. So if you're if you're driving and listening to this, do not uh, participate, but do it in your soul. But if you're at home. Just sit up tall and close your eyes. And just take a deep breath in and exhale it out. Do that again. Take a really deep breath in and exhale it out. And just be aware of your body, wherever you are right now. Any sensations you might feel any sounds that are in your environment and know for a moment just a moment that you have been called that you have work to do and the time is now and you are more than ready and our job is to cultivate the necessary tools so that we can awaken to the grace that is within and within all remember who you are remember who we are to each other and the world will know peace. Place your palms into Namaste. So calling in the God of your own unique understanding, be it your higher power, the creative consciousness, Mother Earth, or the Holy Mother herself, but to this grace we ask. May this moment be an opportunity for connection and remembrance and awakening to occur body, mind, and spirit. May we have the grace, the willingness to step into that sacred world directly behind our eyes, letting go of human interpretation. May we embrace divine perception, which is infinite and limitless. We ask, may we transform our resistance into surrender, our judgment into compassion and understanding, and most certainly, dear God, our fear into faith. And may faith be the quality of beingness that moves us forward on our path, breath by breath, moment to moment, movement by movement. We dedicate this practice, this moment, 
to all of our brothers and sisters out in the world whom because of systemic or religious or political oppression know unimaginable separation and fear and violence to our brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq, Syria and Libya, Afghanistan, to our brothers and sisters in Israel and Palestine, to our brothers and sisters throughout the continent of Africa and Europe, Russia and the Ukraine, and to all of our family here in our nation, in the Americas, who suffer every day from racism and sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, ableism, bias and discrimination. To these souls we commit that we will do our inner work, the inner work necessary, so that we can take accountability for the ways in which we are complicit to this oppression, so that we can transform the way in which we experience ourselves and each other and work towards creating a more unified world where all souls are equal, where all lives are free, where all experience is fair, safe, happy, abundant, peace-filled, and loving. Let's send the energy from our palms out into the universe. May it touch the hearts and souls of all of these souls who need this light. Inhale, bring your arms up and just extend the arms over the head and let the energy just move through the fingertips. Bring your palms to the third eye. Ask to know the truth. Bring your fingertips to your lips. Ask to speak the truth. Bring your fingertips to your heart center. Ask to know it, embody it, feel it, behold it forevermore. Release your palms. Keep your eyes closed, but take two more very deep breaths in. Exhale it out. Again, take another deep breath in. Exhale it out. And then open your eyes. And now go out into the world. Do good. Love big. Forgive always. And I'm not going to say the last part because you got to read the book. And you'll know what that last part is. But when you do read it and you do hear those last words, live your life in that truth. God bless. Sean Korn, Revolution of the Soul. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 